Welcome to the podcast. I'm Brian Frank, a prosecutor, former Marine. Uh, joining me on the podcast today, uh, Adrian Bonnerberger, Army vet, Afghan vet, and Ryan Connor, comedian, um, and a connoisseur of a bunch of cheeses and stuff. And I don't know, I, I didn't <laughs> right. read the Wikipedia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not really that, but that's okay. And of course, uh, Eric Shaw, who we'll be uh, talking to today. So, Eric, uh, I'll turn it over to you. All right. Thank you, Ryan. Um, so I want to talk just for a second before we dive into things uh, about medical school itself. And, and I hope this gives you a, kind of a greater appreciation for the physicians when you see them and whether it's the anesthesiologist or whether it's your OB or whether it's your primary care doctor or even the general pediatrician. The amount of training we go through is incredibly rigorous. And it has a lot of parallels almost to the military where it's a break you down to build you back up type of mentality. And it really teaches you a different way of thinking and particularly critical thinking where you are, it's not just what's the answer, it's how did you get to the answer? What was the science behind that? And then what are you going to do with it? Um, so it's multiple, multiple layers of deep understanding of any topic that you're talking about. Um, on rounds and things, people joke like, there's no such thing as a stupid question. That's not true. In medical school, you will get absolutely destroyed for asking stupid questions. Um, they really rip apart how you approach a problem to be more succinct about it and to have a very, very rigid thought process uh, about sorting through information and then utilizing information. Um, can, can I just I say start, that being a doctor in the military actually sounds like the same process as comedy, except for comedy doesn't matter. <laughs> you you got to get booed by a couple of audiences yeah. to get broken yeah, down. Yeah, man. You take your lumps, you get, you get beaten down for a while, and then eventually you, you become numb to it, and then, then it doesn't matter, and then you can actually do your job. You know, but like I said, this is a job that you, we don't actually need. That's the difference. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you do bring up a good point is that there are certain careers where like you cannot, you just have to be numb to, to any kind of negative feedback or you just will never grow in your, in your job. Now, Eric, was that, do you think that's, that's by design? Like you said, like it's like intentional breaking you down or is it just, I don't know, something else. I mean, did you know that at the time when you lost, do med school students know that, that they're, they're being, you know, reprogrammed? To <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Um, I mean, you're kind of there. You're not going to change what you're doing. Um, but yeah, you see it happening and, and you embrace it actually, because you don't want to be embarrassed on rounds. You want to impress your attendings. And so you fully embrace it and you, you learn this as a, as a new lifestyle. And this is how you think about things. This is how you approach the world, not just medicine after this. Um, but speaking of being beaten down. Um, my process of getting into medical school was definitely uh, challenging. You know, I didn't get in on the first two tries. I ended up getting a master's that I'd never intended to get. I did the paramedic stuff, which was supposed to just pad my resume, but ultimately uh, I ended up doing that much longer. And as we talked about last time, had some effects and we'll kind of get to that, you know, while it ties in. But by the time I got to my second year of med school, I was in a, a bit of a crisis there where I was basically burnt out. I was bordering on depression. Um, I, I was just so stressed from constant, constant testing and pushing and pushing and pushing to get better and better. And, and I was just not in a really good headspace at that point. So as I moved into my third year, 
which is where we move from didactic learning into our clinical rotations, more physical stuff where we're actually seeing patients and putting this stuff to work. I wasn't exactly on like really steady ground. Um, I, I joked with people about being in medical school, particularly second year, where I was like stuck in a good place, um, where I absolutely hated what I was doing. I was close to $100,000 in debt. I didn't have a, deg- a meaningful degree. I couldn't walk away from it. I just had to s- just keep trudging through it. Um, the only positive in my now life at that is, point. The this only may positive be a question. Go for it. The the when you're in med school, you said the so the, you don't even see live patients until your third year. Um, you see them a little bit with a, a tremendous mm-hmm. amount of guidance your first and second year, where you're kind of like placed with a primary care physician and you do some shadowing and they'll let you see a few patients, but not much is expected of you. Uh, whereas in third year, you are now seeing several patients. You are, you know, um, presenting to the the hospital teams or to your attendings, and you are now like doing stuff. So, so if my my doctor, uh, you know, he he has uh, students from the USC here, and sometimes they'll do my like intake questions, you know, for a physical. Is is that probably a third year person or yep. like a residency mm-hmm. Absolutely. person? Okay, okay. It could be both. It could be both, but it's very likely a third year student. Gotcha. Um, just a quick observation. I mean, it sounds pretty easy to me. Like anybody could do medical school. <laughs> is that is that right? Or um, the I forget the exact numbers, but I, I think it's close to like one in two thousand get into medical school, and maybe even worse than that. That said, the fruition rate for medical school is close to like 97%. Like they have a good system of picking people that don't drop out. Um, usually once they're there, well, again, you're stuck. <laughs> once you drop a it's couple a lot, hundred it's thousand. It's a lot better than law school, I'll tell you that. They yeah. do a lot better job than law schools do. But, I mean, you're motivated. When you're $100,000 in and you're two years in and you don't have a degree, you're kind of motivated to finish. Um, so as I got into third year, you know, things weren't. Things actually get really looked up. I really enjoyed third year. I was finally doing what I wanted to do and actually doing clinical patient work again. Um, at my core, like I, I am a clinician. Like I, I did as crazy as the paramedic stuff was. I I really enjoyed a lot of it. I like working with people. And um, one of the first cons- kind of interesting experiences I had uh, was actually on my pediatric rotation. And there was a young boy. He was probably about four or five years old. He'd been born with an emphalocele, which is where basically his guts were on the outside of his body when he was born. And they, for all intents and purposes, fixed it, but like you can't really fix that. And things just were never right with him. And he'd had dozens and dozens of surgeries at this point. And so he'd been on antibiotics basically his whole life. He grew multiple uh, antibiotic resistant bugs constantly. And so he was always on contact precaution. And he should have just stayed in his room all the time. But he basically lived at the hospital because he was so fragile and so sick. And his mother had other children. And the sicker he got, the more and more she withdrew from him. And there came a point where basically the nurses were his family. And any medical student that would play with him, even though they had to gown up and wash everything and be careful, like those were his friends. And he just would sometimes roam the halls despite being on contact precautions and despite not supposed to be out of his room. So the nurses just kind of turn a blind eye to this 
walking petri dish of a sad child walking around. The only problem, the big problem with that was we'd occasionally have kids that had cystic fibrosis who were kind of in a similar situation where they've been on antibiotics forever. They also grow disgusting, crazy, crazy bugs. And they are also have major, major immune problems. And when we'd see him try to play with them, that was always like, uh, let's, let's, let's not play with them. Um, but it was just a sad one to see this boy that was likely going to die in the hospital whose mother was kind of withdrawing from her child because of the, the bigger picture. Can I ask you, so like before the first time you see a patient like that, you know, the, the doctor who, or nurse, whoever's sending you in, do they, like you get a briefing, right? So you, before you go in, so you have an idea of what you're getting into. You're not just walking in and you're seeing like just the saddest thing ever and you're not prepared to see it. Not always. Really? Sometimes, Sometimes you just, just walk in and you're just, can, can I ask how rare is this uh, disorder? And also you say it's, it's just the intestines that are on the outside. It, with it, There's kind of two variants of it, but he had the worst mm-hmm. for like basically all of his insides were outside. Everything in his like GI cavity was outside. The the thing with the kids, man, the thing with the long term health issue with kids with the short life expectancy. Well, what is what would the life expectancy be for a kid like that? Uh, it depends on the complications, but he's ultimately. Uh, I never followed up at this point, but like he he would have died of sepsis at some point. Something would have gone wrong. He either got a UTI or a bowel obstruction or something like that, and at some point the antibiotics just wouldn't work anymore. And that it, it. is it super rare. Or oh, is very, it like very, very rare? I but mean, if you work in like, say, children's hospital, are you seeing that's something you are still seeing like every year or something or every month? Yeah. Or, I, yeah. If you're a subspecialist or, or if you're working at a major university hospital, it's going to like hyper concentrate the weirder, mm-hmm. rarer stuff. I mean, to put it in perspective, I've never seen this since then. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Let's let now do now do a funny story. Uh, let's sorry. follow that up with a foot. Sorry, uh, I just had so many questions. It's just like Jesus. horrific. Man. I'm not gonna lie. This a- episode really doesn't have any funny stories. This this episode gets kind of like dark and sad really quickly. All right, Adrian, uh, bring some cool. levity. Stay- yeah, I was just gonna say. Tuned, I mean, uh, if it gets dark pretty quickly, and you're saying that in relation to the story you just told, then uh, <laughs> I wish I'd brought some alcohol with me. Uh, okay, I'll t- I'll tell the second funniest story I have. Um, so <laughs> moving moving on to. <laughs> surgery rotation here. Uh, I was not a big fan of surgery, particularly at this point. I'd already decided that I wanted to do pediatrics. And so that's actually a good point to talk about. Um, I had realized from when when I came into medical school, I wanted to do emergency medicine. And from my experience doing the paramedic stuff, I was already starting to tack away from that. I realized that I didn't enjoy that the blood and guts aspect of it anymore. And I really started to feel that it was bad for like my humanity or my soul or however you want to put it. Like I did not feel that it was good for me as a person to have that in my life. And I was trying to do something that was more uh, fun, pleasant, less stressful, um, more community based, more like helping my neighbors versus like doing something crazy and bloody and uh, exciting. And in my first year, you asked if I saw patients my first year. I worked with a pediatrician who was amazing. And her name was Dr. Meyer in Richmond. And she really solidified my desire to go into pediatrics. And one of the big ones she did that was so awesome uh, was she had second generation patients. She had parents 
that were her patients before they were now bringing their new kid to her. And I thought that that was just mind-blowingly awesome to have that degree of continuity and that degree of confidence, you know, from your community to, to do that. And that really was moving to me and helped push me towards pediatrics. So by the time I got to surgery, I was not happy to be doing surgery. I knew I didn't want to do this. I, I always feel like surgery is a little bit dehumanizing. Um, I have a quick, like, like technical question. You said you did a pediatric rotation, and now you're going to talk about a surgical rotation. Mm-hmm. How long is, you're in your third year of uh, medical school. How long is a rotation? Between two to three months, depending on which one you're doing. And so you do all the major medical fields. So you do pediatrics, you do OB-GYN, you do family medicine, you do internal medicine, you do surgery. And then in fourth year, you start to move more into like your uh, subspecialty uh, things and, and electives if you want to do them. And, and this is um, a mix of you uh, evaluating, uh, you know, what you're, uh, you know, drawn to as well as, you know, these facilities or hospitals evaluating whether or not they want you in those fields. Is, is that, or is not it just yet. around your knowledge? Th- this is pure learning. This okay. is, uh, this Got is, it. you are, you're absorbing all this stuff. You're trying to take in as much information as you can and being tested on it. And, um, with surgery, there's one thing that that I want to stress with this, and it's this weird dichotomy in medicine of it, it is always, always, always emphasized that you're doing this for altruism and empathy. But in surgery, you're, you're the, the surgeons are almost encouraging you to look at this person as like a, a piece of meat. You have to be objective. You have to be scientific. You have to be kind of cold and calculating about it. But at the same time, empathetic. And it's a really difficult ball to juggle. Um, and it's just something that I never really could get my head around. And so surgery was just rather unpleasant for me. Um, it was actually, well, let, let, the, the, I'll tell you the next, next funniest story. We had a, a lady that came in that was for all intents and purposes, septic and going into shock. And she had what we call like a surgical abdomen where her belly is just absolutely full. Um, it's taut, like it's tender. She's like, burning up fever, her blood pressure dropping, and we rush her to the OR. We know something's wrong in there. Um, and we op- they, they did all the scans, and they just found that there was like free air in her abdomen. So somewhere along the line, a hole had popped in her gut. And we ran her whole gut. We started at the very top and kind of like moved our way down, went through the whole thing. And at the very, very end, literally stuck up against her rectum and her anus, actually in her rectum, but against her anus, was an enchi- entire chicken bone. It had made it all the way through, all the way to the very end, just to get caught and erode a tiny little hole in her gut. And we fixed uh, how, it. How big of a chicken bone? I, a good like two or three inches. So she, she, she so, swallowed okay. this thing. Okay. How the fuck? She swallowed an entire chicken bone. Do we know it didn't go up the other way since it was caught right at the rectum? Um, it's questionable. Um, but I just... <laughs> Judging by this woman's size, I think it was more of a, she was just eating very quickly and it uh, oh, slipped uh, by. I swallowed a whole carrot and digested it all the way to my anus. <laughs> <laughs> so, some, of my ER, some of my ER friends have a lot of good stories and great pictures of, I slipped and fell and it uh, just <laughs> ended up there. Um, so to, to tie uh, a question from last episode into this, you got, we had talked about interesting smells. And I think, Ryan, you'd asked me, was that the worst thing you'd ever smelled? And I said, no. 
that brings me to this story. Um, so we had a Vietnam veteran who'd lost a leg in the war and he was a paratrooper. And uh, even with one leg, he would still routinely get together with his buddies and go skydiving. And he took a rough landing uh, and he banged his stump and he just got really unlucky where he got a hematoma, which is like a, a big bruise underneath the skin where there's basically like a pocket of blood. And he then from there got something called necrotizing fasciitis. And so in between your skin and your muscle fascia is a uh, possible space. And under normal circumstances, there's nothing there. It's just they, those two are kind of like stuck together with a little bit of fluid. But when things get in between them, that's a space that can spread through your entire body. And you can get sick very, 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 very quickly because it just spreads. I mean, think about like cancer, but this is like minutes to hours to days where like you're going to get from like sick. It can just spread everywhere. And so this hematoma got infected and became necrotizing fasciitis. Because it's an enclosed space like this, it's an, anaero it's an anaerobic bacteria that's growing in there. And if you've ever done, or really not done the dishes for several days and ever found a pocket of something that was growing or like underwater in a bowl and you take that plate off and you're like, holy shit, what is that smell? That's an anaerobe. That, it's a unique, fermenty, funky, but just absolutely awful smell that I can't really describe. And the only way to get treat necrotizing fasciitis is to basically fillet the person, to open up all the skin, to get all the infection out. And then you actually leave it open for days afterwards and you do skin grafts and stuff afterwards, but you have to get all the infection out. Well, it had gone all the way up from his stump through his groin and up into his, like, basically his abdomen. And so we started to fillet him and the smell hit me and it was so vile and so wretched. And it was one where the nurse was coming around and putting the the eucalyptus or like the mint stuff under everybody's nose, which just made it smell like mint and awful. There was no covering this. Um, where it, it, just, it just ruined your, your appreciation for mint is all it did. Yeah, I didn't want to brush my teeth. I didn't want to brush my teeth. It's that smell mixed with mint. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the worst, there's so much bad about this. Like as we flayed this guy, they flayed everything. They flayed his, his, his testicles they, or they flayed his scrotum and they flayed his penis. And so like the, his testicles were on the outside. Everything was on the outside and he was just open. Um, yeah, he did not survive the night of that one. Um, but it was just absolutely horrific to watch and smell that at the same time this is the second funniest How? story so, no no the the, the, the oh. chicken bone was the <laughs> oh okay <laughs> so the chicken bones just to clarify here the chicken bones as good as it gets this goes like this guy goes the the doctors are like you're 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 like okay here's bad news this thing that you've got is the solution is filleting you um What's your what's his chance of living? You tell him like this. You got a ten percent chance of coming through this. It's just like incredibly traumatic for the body, and he's like ten percent, or I die an, a painful death over the next like twenty four hours or whatever. Okay, I'll take the ten percent. Fillet me. Um, I wasn't there for that conversation. Um, I was just kind of along for the ride with the uh, surgical team, so I I didn't. I wasn't a part of that. Now is that actually, a medical term, filleting? Uh, no, but okay. I, I, cause I don't know. Like if you, if a doctor comes to me and he says, Hey, we got to fillet you. I'm like, Holy shit. What are you doing? Yeah. I think, I like, think, that's, I think evacuate is oh, the, the term. Okay. Uh, 
So, okay. so question for you. So you, you, you know, you're peeling the skin back, right? To a, you're exposing the fascia basically, right? Now, because it's anaerobic, does that mean like just does the exposure to oxygen kill this thing, or are you just are you putting like fucking antibiotic creams all over? You're you're washing it all out. I mean, you're washing out. Yeah. You're using like saline, and you're just dumping fluids all over it. And ultimately, just you're going to have them on antibiotics. Um, okay. You know what? I, I want to. They're not funny, but I do want to tell two positive surgical stories that I, I found really interesting and, and are not horrible and distressing. Um, one of the coolest things I got to see was a guy get his finger put back on and he, we did this on, I did, I was with the vascular surgery team and we got to do it under the microscope. And so it's a twinned scoped scope. And so I'm looking in and the surgeon is looking in and we have the fin- the finger tourniqueted off and she's with these micro threads and needles hooking the arteries back together and hooking the nerves back together. And then as she takes the tourniquet off, you can actually see the red blood cells go through the vessels and into the vessels that she repaired. I I thought that was absolutely fascinating. Um, Another really cool one. Is it rare though for someone to like lose a finger like that um, in their asshole and then you're able to put it back on? (laughs) Uh, Good tie in. (laughs) Sorry. Um, (laughs) The other one that I saw that was really fascinating was um, we, I was with the plastic surgery team and a guy um, had a soft tissue facial tumor and the oncologist went in and for all intents and purposes did a faceotomy. They took out his lower orbit, they took out his cheek, they took out his jaw, and they took out the entire side of his face. And it was our job to go back in and put it back together. And normally, like standing in a surgical suite when you're not really doing much for more than an hour or two is absolute hell. Uh, I was in there for like six or seven hours. Just I loved watching what we were doing because it was so cool. So we took his fibula, uh, the lower one of the bones in your lower leg, and we remade his jaw with his fibula. We took his one of his abdominal muscles with the vein and with the artery and reattached it to create his new cheek. And we hooked his facial artery up to the artery there so it would have a blood supply. But we left the nerve off so they would atrophy and kind of pull together and tighten up. We took took some fascia, I think, from his abdomen and created a new lower uh, base for his orbit so his eyeball wouldn't fall down into it. Uh, it was amazing to watch these guys It's incredible. It, How long is that operation? It was probably about 20 hours. Wow. Uh, I, I stayed in for about eight. I was there until about midnight, and the, the surgeon's like, go home. We're going to be here all night. We're going to take turns. So come back in the morning. It was fascinating. That was one of the cooler ones. And this is going to this is going to be sound maybe a little bit dumb, but you couldn't just put the stuff back in because this growth or whatever had deformed oh, it. That's why you couldn't it taken just... over. So a tumor invades the the tissue around it. So it was just all tumor. And so like the only way for him to survive was just to remove everything. It wasn't, it wasn't his anymore. Right. It was the tumors at that point. Can I ask you a question? Cause you said you were fascinated by being in there for those six hours when you weren't actually operating. Did you, when you were a kid, did you like watching uh, surgery on TLC? Do you oh, remember totally. that? I love that stuff. I, yeah. I loved it. And now it's just, you know, it's just fucking redneck science crap. <laughs> my my parents Will were, it sink? <laughs> my parents were therapists. We had anatomy books all over. Mm-hmm. When I was like eight or nine for Christmas, I brought I bought like a human body muscle model and like all it's like I love this stuff. I've yeah. always really loved this stuff. Did you guys watch that? Dude, uh, Adrian you- and Ryan? Oh yeah, I saw that. Because it was always like and I was probably like, I don't know, 11 or 12. And if you flip through and the parents weren't around, like, 
is it is there going to be something like maybe somebody you know in a state of undress it was never anything like that it was always like gross eyeballs yeah Yeah, it's (laughs) like yeah it's just like i don't want i don't need to no i was never into that but um i do remember i do remember eric from a from whenever i first met you you knew you were going to be a doctor so how when did that start pretty much always um i i did always thought that for a good point i wanted to be a veterinarian um and then i went to i actually went to virginia tech because they had the vet school there uh but as i became a freshman there i just didn't want to be in the fields at four in the morning with my hand up a cow's ass and it just uh that was enough to kind of switch me over to human medicine (laughs) the the next two were from my were were right from my trauma surgery rotation and this where things got really kind of ugly um and part of it was my mindset of just like I was a hundred percent full tilt towards pediatrics. I didn't want to do surgery. I didn't want to be there anymore. I didn't like blood and guts anymore, and I was kind of pulling away from this. I just wasn't quite ready for these next couple. Um, the first one was very sudden. It was a uh, in the trauma bay. This we weren't even in the trauma bay. It, she was already up in the trauma, or sorry, in the OR suite, and we went in. And I was with the head of the program. And it was a car accident. It was a drunk driver and she wasn't, she didn't have her seatbelt on and she hit the, the steering wheel and she was unresponsive. She also had like a surgical abdomen at that point, which we knew there was with the trauma. We knew that there was blood in there and we just didn't know how bad. And she was kind of beginning to, to tank a little bit. And as soon as we opened her up, not only did she completely tank, but it was like a waterfall of blood came out. And what had happened is when she hit the wheel, she dissected her descending aorta. And so all of her blood, all of it came out all at once. And oh my God. there was, there's no fixing that. There, there was no like, oh, we're going to do some fluids. We're going to do some resuscitation. We're going to do some transfusions. Like it was all gone, all gone. And I just remember the surgeon's response was, I think what was so upsetting, um, she turned it into like this diatribe about drunk driving. And I get that. I get that. She sees this. She sees the end results of this all the time. But this was a young woman. She was like 22, 23. It just died in front of us. And she's like, well, it's all her fault. She shouldn't have been drunk driving and blah, 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 blah. And it was no sympathy, no empathy at all for just like what we'd seen. And it was just, just what it, what it was. And it was just really, that was a really upsetting one. Do you think that ever comes from a place of maybe uh, a surgeon or a medical professional saying, I don't want to say absolving responsibility, but a way to cope a bit of like, look, I'm being very vocal about like, it's not on me. I can't do anything about this, you know, like to, to kind of shift it a little bit. Does that, did you Probably. ever see that play it in or suspect? Um, to, to some extent. And, and I'll tie that into my next story. Um, but yeah, to some extent. So before we move on to the next story, I was just going to say like, what could have been done? It doesn't sound like, I mean, you opened her, it's not like, I mean, she was going to die with the, the blood was already out of the place it was supposed to be. So it's die this way or die that way. Right. I mean, yeah, there, there was nothing that could have been done at that point. Um, I think they'd done like a fast scan in the ER where they do like an ultrasound or a CAT scan. And then I think they may have had a rough idea of what was going on. But at that point, when they're that unstable, they just rush them up to the OR and it's kind of up to the surgeons to do what they can. So they could have just basically not opened her up in this weird like hellraiser like explosion of blood but she still would yeah. die yeah yeah there was That's, no fixing that there was no fixing that. 
so when you say the, the term surgical abdomen, uh, does that mean op- operation has to happen immediately or does, or does it just mean that something has been breached within the abdomen that needs to be fixed or is that the same thing? It's the same thing. Um, mm-hmm. it, it can be, it can be from multiple problems. It can be from errors in the abdomen or f- blood is in the abdomen or there's an infection that's in there and now there's like, you know, different gases or bacteria that are in there, but it's basically like their abdomen is completely rigid. Um, their vital signs are falling. They're usually going into shock when this is happening. And there's multiple types of shock that you can go into, whether it's hypovolemic or uh, septic. This is like getting too deep into the physiology of it. But um, if you see a surgical abdomen, it's just like, well, don't even stop. Like, just go right to the OR. You need to fix this problem. Not to hijack the conversation at all, but to perhaps uh, add some context for it. One of the most nervous or anxious periods of my life was, I think, a month or two out from my first deployment when we were going through this kind of, uh, we called it at the time, Ranger First Responder training, which is probably like an abbreviated form of EMT training. And basically what it is, is, okay, well, this is what you do with this wound. This is, you know, sucking chest wound, uh, this, that, and the other, the, the, the four or five things that you could feasibly do on the battlefield to help prep a casualty before the helicopters come in, if they come in, or, or you get slammed in the back of a Humvee. And like, part of doing that is learning about all of these really awful things that have been designed to do that to the human body. And that, like, that's war is it's like... you've got this in the civilian world where like all sorts of these horrible misfortunes can befall you. you The wind blows and a tree branch falls on your head or you're in an accident or somebody else is drinking and and they crash into you. Um, But in war, it's like, yeah, you're going into this situation where uh, there are all of these things and they're supposed to do this to you. They're supposed to open you up. And, 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 uh, and and so I'm going through this training and by the end of it, I think it was about a week of training. I was just like, I was getting bad sleep and I was like, I think, I mean, I'm, I appreciate this training, but I also kind of sort of like, I'm happy that the medic is, is responsible for this. Like, I don't, you know, I don't want to learn any more about this stuff. And maybe I made a mistake here. The last story I have is, um, is definitely my worst one. Um, and it was arguably probably one of the worst days of my life. It was just something that was so absolutely brutal. And it's something that I still dream about. It's something I still think about. I can't kind of walk away from this one. And it was just, well, here it is. Um, so we were called down to the trauma bay for a motorcycle accident. And um, the gentleman that we were seeing was on the front of the bike and his girlfriend was on the back. And the girlfriend came in to the bay next to him and was completely awake. She was a little bit bruised up, but she seemed mostly fine. Um, Our patient, on the other hand, the best analogy I have is crumpling up a piece of paper, uh, except to a human. There were jagged angles that weren't supposed to be there. Things were facing the wrong directions. Uh, Everything was was absolutely falling apart. Um, There's things you talk about the battlefield stuff, and there's things that we learn in medical school that you're looking for, particularly like when you're doing a, a checking someone's neck, you're looking for step-offs. You're looking for where the vertebrae are not in the right alignment. None of his are in the right alignment. You're looking for flail chest, which is where the, the ribs 
are not moving in sync with each other because they're all completely broken apart from each other. He had flail chest. He had a surgical abdomen. Um, his his hip was completely destroyed where like one of his legs was virtually backwards. Um, and he kind of similar to the, the gentleman I talked about in the first episode about uh, where, where the, the residents worked him as a kind of a learning code kind of kicked in. And they worked this guy as fully and as hard as you can possibly imagine where um, you know, they were doing the lines, they did a central line, they did all the, the scans, and then ultimately they did a thoracotomy where they opened up his chest um, from his shoulder down to his abdomen, and they were basically manually pumping his heart. And when he started to crash, they were doing defibrillating with very, very small and very like precise paddles to his heart. Not on the outside, not the clear stuff, but doing it all actually internally to his heart. So this man's entire cardiorespiratory system was on the outside of his body as they did this. Um, as this was going on, uh, another gentleman came into the trauma bay who was awake and he was actually sitting up on the bed. And I really wasn't paying that much attention to him. Um, but I heard kind of as they were working that he'd been shot and he'd been shot in the back and they as uh, they were kind of assessing him, he was beginning to decline. Um, these two things kind of happened in sync with each other. And there came a point where it was the ER residents that were running the patient that I was seeing. And the trauma surgery team was getting prepped to take the shooting victim. So I was on the trauma surgery team. And they said, look, there's not, we're not going to work this guy. We're, we're not going to work this motorcycle guy. There's no point. He's done. Um, trauma surgery team, let's take the shooting. And so we took him upstairs and we took him into the surgical suite and we got to work. So with him, we knew he'd been shot in the lower back. Um, he also too was developing a surgical abdomen. We knew his abdomen was filling with blood, but we were catching it early. We thought like, this is someone that we can work with here. Um, we got lines in him. We were giving him transfusions. We opened up his abdomen and a lot of blood came out, obviously. And so we're looking with this, it was a, it was a little bit different from the chicken bone lady. Uh, we didn't know where the hole was. We didn't know, so, we knew something was hit, but we didn't know where all this blood was coming from. And we, we ran his bowel. We tried to run like his, we ran his aorta. We didn't see anything there. Um, and time is, time is ticking by at this point. And he's deteriorating despite everything we're doing with the transfusions. And there came a point where, um, we did something where it's called cross clamping the aorta and they take a large, basically clip and they run it across your, your, where your aorta bends down. And so the blood from your heart and your lungs goes to your brain and your heart and your lungs, and it cuts off to the rest of your body. From there, you've got a time frame. You've got about 20 to 30 minutes to fix what needs to be fixed because after that, the rest of your body has not seen oxygen yet. And those cells are screaming and they start to create a lot of toxins and things that if you just open everything up again, will kill you when you open them up, when you open things up again. So you got about at the most 30 minutes to fix things. 10 minutes go by, 20, 30, 40. Um, at that point, like we knew we weren't going to find it. Um, and ultimately the, we did find it and it was a hole that had been blown in his ascending vena cava, which is your vein. It's a low pressure system. So 
We didn't see it because it kept collapsing on itself and you just couldn't see it, but it hit it through and through. Where um, is this vein? It's a large vein kind of in, towards your spine. Um, it, it goes down through your abdomen. It, it actually, it's coming up from your legs. It's coming up from your legs and then goes back into your heart. So it's a return system there. Um, and <laughs> not to be ironic, the, the trauma surgeon that was doing this was a guy that we called Dr. PTSD. Um, he was a army surgeon who'd just come back from uh, Iraq or Afghanistan and had just, just seen a little too much. And he kind of lost his mind. He, in the middle of all this, very abruptly just goes, fuck this shit. I'm done. He throws, the, he throws his instruments and stuff down, and he just walks out of the surgical suite. And it's me, the, the, um, the resident who I was working with, and the nursing team and the anesthesiologist, and we're all just looking around like, did that just happen? Like, what, what do we do? Like, how does anyone respond to that? And, uh, and we're like, well, and this, the, the resident kind of tried to pick up the slack, and he's like, well, I, uh, you know, I, guess, I guess we're calling it at this point. And he starts to like take the clamp off and we're kind of like just kind of milling around. And all of a sudden the surgeon just like walks back in and he's like, he's like, yeah, we're done. And he looks at me, he looks right at me and goes, you med student. He doesn't even know my name. I'm, as a med student, as a third year med student, you're like lowest of low. You're just along for the ride. And he's like, you sew that shit up. His heart's still beating. This guy's not dead, dead yet. His heart is still beating. And he's like, sew that up. And I, and I was like, I, Oh, okay. And the, the, the nurse gives me, I can only describe it as like a horse needle. It's the size of like your finger with like wire attached to it. And I, I try to start doing it. I'm, I'm going to like poke myself. I'm going to stick myself because I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm trying not to like cry, vomit and pass out all at the same time. And the resident kind of took pity on me and like he helped me after about like 10 minutes of me bumbling through this. And, um, and we when we got it done and and when I was done I I, I kind of lost my mind. Like it was to see all this in the course of maybe like two hours just broke me. Like absolutely broke me. This was again one of the worst days of my life where I, I didn't I didn't want to be there anymore. And and I couldn't go home. I still had more hours to be there. No one gave two shits how I felt right then. There was no one there to comfort me. There was no one there to talk to. And I just sat in the corner. I couldn't even cry. I was so fucked up from that. Um, and again, like that's, that's, that's one that kind of still sticks with me where like, I can't get over that. And I don't even know how to try to erase that from my head. And then you have to continue your shift. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is, um, I was just reading, um, an essay about the difference between PTSD and moral injury. And, PTSD being a physically diagnosable condition where you can put somebody through brain imaging and there are parts of the brain that are smaller um, and connections that are visibly less active in people with PTSD. Um, but moral injury happens to many more people. Um, and this, this study was saying that it seems to be driven primarily, I mean, there are a number of variables that are involved that shift with different people primarily by a sense of betrayal. And I wonder if the, I'm not, not a psychiatrist or a moral injury expert. I don't think anybody is right now. It's a pretty new concept. Um, but the, do you think possibly like the, the, 
the breakdown of the hierarchy, like the the doctor who was trusted and sort of like supposed to be running things, kind of throwing his hands up in despair is is one of the things that kind of makes it stand out in your mind. It's not just sort of like the horror of the bodies. It's like this this authority figure being like, there is nothing that can be done here and just like saying fuck this and leaving the room. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a multifaceted problem uh, that I'm dealing with with this one. Um, But that is definitely something like it was so shocking and so jarring for this gentleman to just be like, I'm out. It's done. You guys deal with this. And uh, maybe obviously he had his own issues. Uh, Yeah. I, I used maybe, to go to, maybe uh, if he hears this, he can uh, get on here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I used to go to uh, Al-Anon meetings, and there was a guy whose brother passed away, and I said, "I'm so sorry. Um, you're lost. You're doing. Or how are you doing?" And he goes, "I'm fine. He's an alcoholic. Who gives a shit?" It's like, oh, I, I can't come back here. <laughs> I never went back. I was like, this, the, I. It was like a type of callousness that, uh, or or defensiveness. But you know, being in a position where like the de facto, um, you know, setting should be compassion. To hear that from someone, I was like, I I, I got to cleanse my hands from this. I, I I I couldn't fathom that someone would be like that toward a family member, especially, even if the family member was like treated you like shit. It's like, good God. Eric, I have a I have a couple questions. What how what year was this and how old were you? This was 2007, so I was 27. 27. And did the uh medical school have any like mental health services like if you're having trouble through medical school, you can see these resources. Did they ever provide anything like that that you can recall? Not meaningfully. Okay, so that, I was going to have a follow-up to that. If they did, was there, you know, was it easy to access or was there a stigma that like, you don't really do that. You just kind of suck it up. Oh yeah. A- absolutely. The latter there, there was no, you just sucked it up. You just moved on. And do you think that's changed or you think it's still like that? It's changed. Um, and to expand on that a little bit too, there was a lot of interesting things. I remember seeing a very, very large degree of, misogyny and uh, just kind of general disrespect and and not a ton of racism, but a lot of misogyny amongst like the attendings and things like that. And back then, like you didn't say shit. You just, you just packed down whatever was happening. You just kept your head low and you try to get through medical school. Um, And so the same thing with like the medical or the, um, the mental health stuff, which is like, you just packed it down and you just moved on. Um, What was so interesting in the long run with, with that case and um, kind of like where I, where I was transitioning from wanting to do ER to pediatrics to, um, to my general kind of thought process, like it's bad for my soul. That reaffirmed it in spades, like absolutely, um, that I knew <laughs> that I didn't want to do ER. I knew I didn't want to do uh, anything involving that ever, ever again. Um, and, and it just reaffirmed my decision that I wanted to do pediatrics and, and do something that was less stressful and less awful with my life. So it was a brutal, brutal kick in the the nuts about to get there, but like it definitely made me a hundred percent sure I was on the right track. Yeah. I, I would say I've been on the family side of, of that. My nephew uh, is essentially the motorcycle guy you described. Um, and I, it, 
what the doctors were going through never crossed my mind. You know, and this, so it's 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 uh it's enlightening. My my nephew had uh didn't have quite as severe thor- thoracic issues. Um, while I mean, every rib was broken. His both of his lungs were punctured. Every bone and both in his limbs were broken. His skull was cracked all all over the place. They had to remove his skull and all that stuff. And and he it, it well, they called us and they said he has about two hours um, to live you know that we we can keep his brain active come here and say uh say goodbye we, everyone goes we're distraught you know and uh then they're like I, I don't know his heart's still working there's still brain activity we i don't know why maybe he'll live till tomorrow that happened for about a week meanwhile they didn't fix any of his limbs because or his chest or anything because they're like he's not going to survive he remained stable, but in a coma for about four or five months. One of his legs is like nearly backwards. And then, and, and it, like his bones fused together to the point that they, he didn't have joints. And then one day he turns and says, grandma to my mom. Cause we would just take turns going to the hospital. And so he, anyway, he lived. So it's, you know, he's, he's, you know, uh, not the same person, obviously a severe brain damage and obviously physical issues, but he did make it through. But I mean, salute, salute to the doctors who, uh, kept going, you know, and, um, that's pulled, crazy. Th- I've never heard that. How, what did this happen? This was in 2004 or three. You, you, you must remember this. We, I think we, I think we even lived together. You know what? Didn't we live together then? <laughs> I, well, I, he was at Fairfax, uh, I, I know, was, but so that's where I was going after work every day. Maybe I was in Iraq. I might have been deployed oh, to Iraq. I never were. heard that. That's crazy. You, you were in war. That's crazy. Yeah, you were at, you were at Marine Corps. <laughs> I was at Marine. Thank you for paying attention to my life. I was at Marine Corps, yes. <laughs> yeah. That's that's awful, man. And uh, so his his quality of life is obviously very different now, but still, he requires care and stuff, but he's still... Yeah, he, he he's alive. He's alive. Yeah, he's he's a very different person. Um uh you know, and he he can't, you know, it, it, I can't remember if it's his right or his left side that was that was uh devastated the most. They were able to get some function in one side um of his body and it, it just restoring joints somehow but still not like real functionality. In the past year he started being able to hold himself up on a walker and you know, that's taken 20 years, but he's, he's mostly, uh, immobile or in a, um, in a, uh, wheelchair. He has full use of one arm and then the other arm, it's like sort of, but like, um, uh, you know, it's, it's no control. Basically he flew out of a windshield going like 70 miles per hour is what happened. His so, girlfriend's wearing all- a seat. Yeah, his girlfriend's wearing a seatbelt. She just got a bruise on her shoulder. So, wear a seatbelt. There's an awful joke and saying in medicine of like, once air hits the brain, never the same. And it's just like, once you get those type of injuries, like right. you just don't, you don't bounce back from that. Right. But th- thank you and your your brethren and <laughs> for, for uh, I, I think, I think the thing I really wanted to just kind of like take home with, with this episode is just, and I said this at the beginning, you know, even when you go to like your pediatrician or your family doc, um, just 
recognize like what they may have gone through to be sitting in front of you, to have the privilege of talking to you or, or being your doctor. Um, I know I've talked to a lot of my colleagues and I would say if I had to rate my experience in medical school on a scale of one to 10, one being the best and 10 being the worst, like mine was probably a nine compared to most of my colleagues. Um, but, uh, here we are. Um, this is where we landed. So my takeaway is it's probably pretty easy to be a doctor and most people could do it. I mean, I didn't, obviously I wasn't listening very carefully. I, I heard a lot of really awful things and just kind of switched off and I'm defaulting to that original assessment. Well, I'm in a, I'm in a unique spot where I can't trash talk him too much because I, I text you what, probably once a week with pediatric questions about my kid's got this growth and is he going to die or should I go to the doctor or whatever? So I appreciate all of your life experiences. I've certainly benefited from them. And, um, you know, for all the trash I talk, uh, it seems like you are pretty good what you do. And probably, you know, that, that all makes who you are. I mean, you, you take those experiences, especially with kids, you know, and your bedside manner, you know, it's probably adjusted because of your past experiences. Yeah. 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 Um, I actually want to kind of table that. I want to talk a lot more about that next episode. Um, and just kind of like clawing back my humanity after what I was put through, um, and kind of like the things got a little short circuited after that. Um, but the one thing that was interesting with, with that last experience was just like, it was such an overload. And if I had experienced in that a couple of years ago when I was a paramedic, I would have been like, man, that was kind of wild and, and packed it down. And I, I couldn't do that anymore. I, I just didn't have that ability. I, I, I tried to turn away from that. And uh, even though I feel in the, in the long term that was a good thing to turn away from that, that pack, pack, pack kind of mentality, it, it left me open for, for what happened. I have a completely random question, and I think it was in med school. You had told me a story once about the actor patients. Was that med school? Yeah. Yeah. Standardized patients. Standardized patients. Have you guys ever heard of this? No. People that like are professional patients for med students? No. There's a Seinfeld episode about that where Kramer is one of these. <laughs> That's, That's right. So, okay. The majority, okay. the majority of them are what you think they are. Like you, you pretend that you have pneumonia or you pretend that you're having chest pain and they know the kind of signs and symptoms and they walk it through it. But I know where he's going with this. Uh, there is a sub special, small subset of them that will do the genital exam stuff. And I remember talking to him <laughs> when I was doing this, uh, it alone is a very unique experience. And these people are very unique individuals um they're very comfortable with their bodies in a way that i don't think the majority of us are um the the woman who i had spoke to her vagina in the third person and she was like this vagina has this and this vagina does that and you're doing the vaginal exam with the spectrum and she's got a little mirror that she's kind of looking down there and she's kind of walking mm -hmm. you through it in a casual nonchalance in the like nonchalant way that is just awkward as fuck like it's super weird. <laughs> um, the guy that we had was just like my wife called. He's like sometimes you can have a, a some almost like freckles or or nevuses on your penis, and I have several. My wife calls it the cow penis, and we're just like, I didn't I didn't need to know that. Um, 
<laughs> and just showing us all these different ways of how to do the prostate exam. He's like, well, you can kind of bend over on the table or you can get up on the table and kind of get into the fetal position and you can do it this way. And we're going to do it all. And we're like, awesome. Great. Just what I wanted to do. Um, also with the, the female exam, there is a, uh, I forget the exact term for it, but it's like basically a vaginal rectal exam. And you're looking for cancers, but it's for all intents and purposes, a shocker. And it was just a very odd thing. No, to hold on. That. You just switched. <laughs> you just switched. So anybody that's not, I know you, I know what you meant. Purposes the is a shocker. <laughs> the shocker meaning a particular. Um, uh, we don't need to explain. It's if not you, a medical you know, term. It's if not you a know, you know. It just sort of bowling Google ball it not at work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, that's got to be one of the weirdest chosen jobs. Like I could do McDonald's, I could go to med school, um, you know, uh, but to choose that and to be like enthralled by it is crazy. So that's, that's pretty much your highlights from med school. Now we're talking how long from start to finish the stories that you told, cause you said first, second year, kind of like not experiences. So were those third, fourth year med yes. school, is that what just, we yes, just talked about? All right. All right. And then, uh, obviously uh, a lot of interesting stories to follow after that, but that's for another day. Uh, thank you, Eric, for sharing that with us. Again, known you for a long time. I didn't know a lot of those stories, so appreciate you uh, sharing that with us. Well, I think that's going to do it for this episode. And um, as uh, Adrian has mentioned on uh, previously, you can check him out and his work on Wrathbearing Tree. Um, Ryan, anything you want to highlight? Yeah, uh, my novel, The Party, uh, it comes out December 5th. Uh, get it on Amazon would be the best place. And I'm also doing I'm booking stand up stand up tour for the uh, spring right now. I have a uh, several cities booked right now, um, and uh, a lot of Canada happening this year. It seems. Where can anybody go to look if they're looking for your tour dates? Uh, RyanConnorComedy dot com. Um, if anybody is um, you know committing violent crimes or hurting kids, I'll see you in court. Uh, that's, I'm going to cut that. I'm not going to put that in there. No, that's keep it in there. Wild. Keep it in there. We'll talk about you on another episode. <laughs> Thanks for listening, and uh, see you guys next episode. Thanks for listening. Uh, please take a moment and leave a review for the podcast. We would really appreciate it. Only a good review. If you have something negative, say just tell your friend or uh, you know whoever's sitting near you, whether you know them or not. Uh, don't put that on the internet. We don't need that. Uh, also, please subscribe. Um, it helps us, and uh, you know it'll help you get the podcast uh, right when it comes out. Also, please visit our podcast at thebaggagepodcast.com. I do not know what is on the website. I have never been, but I'm sure it's great. Probably basketball scores and stuff like that. Um, also, if you have a story or a question that you would like to share with us, please email us at thebaggagepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much, and uh, we will, uh, I was going to say see you soon, but that would be a lie. Uh, we will talk at you soon. Bye.